Papercut podcast strives to be evocative and inclusive. Every Monday, we cut below the surface with folks that make the Winnipeg arts and culture scene thrive. Welcome to Papercut Podcast. My name is Jared Goche. I'm Olivia Michaelchuk, and we're here with John Anderson. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, well, I'm a retired high school teacher, and but I've always had a passion for music history. I played in bands in the 60s and kind of... I guess you want to say it came of age in that whole British invasion time and got hooked on music and hooked on rock and roll. Um, in 19, well, February, 3, February 9th, 1964, I saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show and, you know, immediately started growing out my crew cut and, uh, you know, got a guitar not long after and began playing in bands. And um, once, I st- um, once I stopped playing... Uh, I I still love music and music history, so I began to write about it. And then throughout all my teaching years, I was writing uh, magazine articles, fanzine articles, newspaper articles, and then gradually moved from there into writing books about music history. So for me, it's been it's been a nice transition from playing to writing about music, and um, I continue to do that today. I've been retired now; this is my, my 11th year of retirement. And um, I'm busier than ever doing you know, music history writing, whether it's, again, whether it's articles and broadcasting. Uh, I've curated a couple of exhibits, and I'm creating uh, curating two more. And um, still, you know, doing articles and books and things. So uh, I'm following my passion, I guess is what it is. Once I discovered rock and roll, and once I discovered the Beatles, I mean, that really set the course for my life. Oh, and how old were you when that happened? Uh, I was 12 when the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan show. and um, Was it cool to grow your hair out at that time? Well, <laughs> Did your parents approve? My parents were okay with it. Uh, I was I was the major work kid in the family, so I was uh, that's that was like a, an elevated program. I was in it from four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So my parents were never worried about me academically, even with my obsession with music and listening to records and you know spending all my money buying records. They were okay with it because they, I was still getting A's in school. And but I mean, I grew up in. Um, a family that was very much like uh, other families at that time. Our parents had gone through the Depression and World War II, and when they came out of it, they sort of vowed that their kids would never have to, to have to live with any of that, you know, live with less and live without uh, that they did. So it was just assumed that I would go to university, and um, that was part of our generation. But my parents always said, get a university degree to fall back on. And, and do music. But I did music all the way through high school, played in bands, and I, all the way through university. That's how I paid for my university, was playing in bands. Uh, playing. How much was the tuition then? Oh, my first, <laughs> my first tuition, uh, 1970, September of 1970, my first year of university, I was 17 years old. The tuition was $420. And how many shows did you have to play to get $420? Oh, I was doing, I was, <laughs> that, 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 was, that was four weeks of playing. For me, because wow. I could wow. I could easily make more than a hundred dollars a week playing. You know, it, it, it's funny looking back on it, but I was uh, making more money than my contemporaries who weren't playing in music. But I was making my money off of their leisure. They'd work all day doing construction or something <laughs> in the summers, and they'd go to um, you know the the Saint Fatale Hotel or something, and, and I'd be up there playing, and that's how I made my my living and my money. And you know, I mean, even at university, I, I can recall having playing a gig. In Shiloh, Manitoba, and it was a two-night gig at the at the the forces base there, and having to drive in 
after the first gig because I had an exam the next day at the university. And then after the exam, driving back out to Shiloh, of course, by the time I got there in the afternoon, everybody was just waking up in the band and (laughs) playing that night. But I always had that focus. And I I tended to play with guys who weren't in university. A lot of them were were older than me. And music was was their career focus. Um, But with me, I I had the two. But once I got the university degree done, then it allowed me to be able to, to focus on playing. So I played for, for a few more years, uh, and then at, my epiphany took place in North Bay, Ontario, waking up one, one Sunday morning after playing a whole week at a place called the Hayloft, and realizing I wasn't getting any younger, my hair was getting thinner. The, you know, I was playing with guys who were older than me, this was their whole life, and I, I sort of saw more out of life than that, and so I, I stopped playing. Back to university, got my teaching degree, traveled a bit, and then um, began teaching in 1978. The thing about that, though, is that I never stopped being a musician in that from the first day I started teaching, I ran a a music program. I taught guitar, different levels of guitar in my first uh, nine years. I taught in Morden, Manitoba. My family moved out there. And then uh, when I came into Winnipeg for the Department of Education, I continued to teach guitar. Um, and when I, when I started at Ravenscourt, St. John's Ravenscourt in 1990, I started a rock music program, like after-school rock music program, with the idea, well, the idea being we'll put together, we'll audition kids and put together one band, and it'll be you know, a couple of guitars, bass, drums, a couple of synthesizers, you know, maybe three or four singers. And we did that for, I did that for the first couple of years, and they, they, would, they would rehearse through the year and um, play at some like winter carnival or some kind of an event or a dance. Uh, but after about the fourth year of doing that, it, se- it, it seemed to me unfair that w- I would have 100 kids audition and only pick about 10 of them or 11 of them. I thought, well, you know, let's do something bigger. Let's, let's do a rock and roll review, you know, R-E-V-U-E kind of review. <laughs> and so that kind of was the impetus for what became known as the Rock Show Program. And it, at its peak, it was, I had 120 kids a year involved, and we rehearsed almost every day after school. And we do these huge shows we would take over the gym and huge scaffolding and you know mounted lights it was like an uh like an arena rock show mm-hmm. and we had lasers and you know flew the pa from the <laughs> wow. ceiling and you know huge curtaining and all that one year we had pyrotechnics we hired archangel to come in and do wow. flames and explosions and whatever uh it, it was a big deal it actually became the most popular extracurricular event in the school and we put on these shows like for three or four nights uh in the gym and we'd sell out Every night. Wow, so in a the big gym, deal. having all these pyrotechnics yeah. go off in there. Wow. Yeah, yeah we, we, the phys ed teachers were told they had to find somewhere else to hold their classes. <laughs> we were fortunate we had a, we had another gym in the school, so that's they could, they great. Misplacing athletes with artists. Yeah. How often does that yeah, happen? That's beautiful. Well, we, <laughs> because we had a Ravenscourt has a boarding community. I mean, it, it, I mean, fifty years ago it was half fifty fifty, but you know it's it's down to about ten percent now of kids who are boarding. We started getting kids who were coming because of the rock show. Wow! You know, not just for the academics of Ravenscourt; it's a high academic level, but they wanted to be in the rock show. And I still meet adults today who were kids back then who who will say that was the greatest uh, experience of their high school. Wow. Time. Really? Is there any, the any name dropping that you could do? Like some of those students that were in bands after? <laughs> well, they all, they all, I mean, it's the St. John's Ravenscourt, it's a university prep school. Right. So, I mean, I'd be name dropping doctors and lawyers. And that's that's kind of oh, that's but it, 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 it's just interesting that um, 
again, these I've run into in the strangest situations, like being at a hospital, taking my dad to a hospital a few years ago, and one of the attending doctors was someone who was in my rock show program, who gained stop and said it was the greatest experience of my in my high school. I still think about it, that sort of thing. Wow. And you know, I mean, um, well, just recently, just just as of a couple of days ago, Beauty and the Beast ended at uh, at Rainbow Stage, mm-hmm. and Heather McGuigan, who was in it, in the in the, in the Cast um, it was a graduate of my rock show program. She was in it for five years because she, she started in grade in that eight. Program? Pardon? She was a singer in the program. She was a singer. She was a lead singer. I mean, she last it was last year or the year before they had Shrek at at, at Rainbow Station. She played the female character whose name I can't remember. What the female Fiona. characters? Yeah, okay, that's who she, <laughs> that's who she played well, in sure. that. She's been Anne of Green Gables and PEI. She's been all over mm-hmm. uh, doing this because she made a uh, she decided to follow that as a pursuit and went wow. to Sheridan College. Oh, cool. But you know, again, most of the kids coming out of Raven's Court, this is a great experience for them. And, you know, it's nice to know that they're still playing. A lot of them are still playing whatever instrument or still singing, but they've gone on to, to careers. That's so cool. So, so is that program still... It is. I, I, I retired from teaching, classroom teaching in 2008. And the school came to me, the headmaster came to me and said, you know, we can't not have a rock show program because it's so important to the school. Wow. So he said to me, would you consider coming back and just doing the program. Now, I mean, I did it for 18 years for free. I mean, it was just, it was like coaching volleyball or coaching the reach for the top team. It was my extracurricular activity, even though it was 360 hours a year. Um, so I said to him, well, yeah, but I'm retired. And they, so they, they paid me. They gave me a very, very, very nice um, stipend to, to, to do it and I did so I did the rock show program for another seven years so I ended at 25 years of the rock show program even though I retired after 18 years at Ravenscourt I did seven more years of the rock show program and it's still carrying on there's a fellow that I got to, to know he's a professional musician in town and um, he is Car- Carlin Carlin Lemon is his name and he runs uh, several bands around town and uh, he was perfect for it because he was a full-time musician. It wasn't like he had a job during the day and he had to race to the school at 4 o'clock. Um, and he was <laughs> a very, very talented guy. So he's been running the program for three years now. And, and he's doing it his way, and that's fine. I mean, yeah. you've got to hand over the mantle at some point and let someone else take over. So you have how many books? Fourteen. Fourteen books. Fourteen music history books, but I've, I've done textbooks and stuff too. Oh, really? Textbooks and teacher's guides, yeah. The grade 8 textbook, I co-wrote that. It's still in use. So kids, when you get that book, carve <laughs> it up, write all over it, so that your school has to buy a new copy. Oh, <laughs> Next nice. year, I get my royalty. <laughs> so of the 14 rock music history, is it rock history or all sorts of music history? Yeah, no, it's pretty much rock. I mean, there's some... There's some... So who are some of the bands that you've written oh, okay. about or subjects? Um, uh, well, at Neil Young, the biography of Neil Young, with his cooperation. Uh, the Guess Who, um, did Randy Bachman, Ian and Sylvia, Arthur Lee and Love, and I don't know if you know who they are, but they're, look them up. <laughs> love, love. Yeah. It's very much an influential guy, um, kind of a cult following. He did one of the greatest albums. I mean, any music critic worth his salt, if he's ever asked to name the 10 greatest albums of all time, will have forever changes on that list. It's by Love. And Arthur Lee was pretty much love, the brainchild of love. So I did them, Flying Burrito Brothers, uh, Gene Clark of the Birds, Steppenwolf, 
um, the guess who I think I mentioned that already. And they did a book called Desperados, which which really traced the roots of what would become known as country rock. You know, it's it's the Graham Parsons, Poco Dillard's, Flying Burrito Brothers, kind of the origins of that starting in the '60s, and kind of following through. It kind of culminates with the Eagles, because the Eagles learned all their lessons from those who came before them. Um, so I did that, and um, I did a book called Made in Manitoba. When we hosted the Junos in 2005 for the first time, I did a book that looked at 60 recording artists that have come from Manitoba. Um, so it was a portrait of each one of them. Um, I did a book called Shaken All Over, which was about the Winnipeg music scene in the 1960s. So how does your research start? What's day one of research for a book? I mean, for a book? Like, just yeah. in general? Yep. Well, for your books. Yeah, well, that's, but that, you're not asking for a specific book. Just, just no, for, yeah. Um, well, I think what, it, well, I know what I look for is, is there a story? I get, I guess because I've, I've got a, of a reputation kind of now, I get artists contacting me and saying, well, would you like to do a book together? But unfortunately, with, with these, the people that I don't do books with, there's no story. I mean, I don't do books that are just kind of facts. What we, what, what's kind of known in the, in the music history writing field is train spotting books, which are books of lists, you know, fact list, this date, mm. and that sort of thing. There's got to be a story. There's got to be. There's got to be kind of an art, you know, to it. There's got to be a compelling human interest story, than more than just uh, chart success and tours and and that sort of thing. Um, and what you got to try to do is be able to, to balance both the human interest and the story and the character development with the kinds of facts that the train-spotting people still want, but also the people who want a good story and a good a page-turner want as well. So we've got to kind of walk that balance. So what's first is, um, well, picking a topic that interests me. Um, if I wanted to make big money in these books, I'd be writing about Jerry Garcia or Shania Twain or Celine Dion, I pick the subjects I do because they interest me, and they're they're either artists or a genre that is something that that has drawn me that that, that I have an interest in uh, and a, an appreciation for. Uh, so if if that's the case, then I, the research is really reading whatever I can that's available currently on let's say it's an artist, okay, on on that artist to look for the story. And to look for, you know, I mean, the elements of a good human interest story to talk about. And, and the human interest can be, I mean, in a lot of cases with, with artists or bands from the 60s or 70s, somewhere along the way, some, somebody broke up or the band fell apart or something happened because nobody sustains a career forever. So you got to look for that fall and then what happens during that fall? Because that's when everybody starts bickering and, you know, it's always about money. It's always about money. Really? Always about money. Because, I mean, when you start a band in the 60s, nobody ever thought it would last. Rock and roll was considered, you know, I mean, it didn't have longevity to it. It was, it was music that was here for a period of time and then gone. The, the, the length of time of a hit single was three months. You release it, and it's got to have time to climb the charts, wherever it ends up on the charts, and it comes down. And you always had to have another single ready in three months. And when you put out a new single, you have to tour so it, it, it's this kind of regimen that, that existed. And um, so nobody ever thought that, that any of this music would have any longevity. No one ever expected that people would still be listening to Led Zeppelin 
for 50 years after the band formed in 1968. No one anticipated that. Rock and roll length of time of, of, a, of an artist was fairly limited, and, this, and the success of a record was fairly limited. Rock and roll was considered disposable. Disposable music. It's here, it's gone. Someone else comes along, they're here, they're gone. Um, but, you know, certainly the baby boomers, of, of which I am a member... Um, we, we've clung, you know, like with a death grip on this music and everything about our youth. And we're this bulge in the, in the demographic that keeps kind of moving along uh, as we get older and older. And we cling even harder to the music of our youth and, and everything about our youth. Um, I just saw something this morning on TV about Twiggy. Now, in 1966, Twiggy, you're probably giving me blank stares, who's Twiggy? Twiggy was a model, right. and she was the face of British mod fashion in 1966. She runs a multi-million dollar fashion industry now, and she's not the face anymore, but the name still resonates. It doesn't resonate with you, but it resonates with my wife. If she's going to go out and buy well, clothes. Well, she was on America's Next Top Model. She was a okay. judge, so, so I do know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, again, who does I have no idea. <laughs> she was really skinny, but she had huge eyes. Yeah, and the, the blonde yeah, like, she had pixie the, cut, and she yeah, could draw, the, like, uh, eyelashes underneath. Oh, really? Her eyes, yeah. And it made her look like a cartoon. Yeah, and she had the Vidal Sassoon haircut, and she wore the, um, the Mary Quant you know, uh, mini dress right, right. and those kind of outfits. And yes, she was rake thin, but she became the image of the 60s. But whoever thought that people would be talking about her 50 years later, you know, 52 years later. So, okay, where was I going with this? So if there's a story, <laughs> if I think it's a good story, it's got good, you know, and it's going to be, it, the name is, there has to be some name recognition. Mm-hmm. Because if, if there's people with an interest in, in music history and they're browsing a bookshelf, it has to catch their attention in some way, whether whether it connects with a song or it connects with the name of the band. Um, it has to be something that, that, that grabs them. I mean, I'm sure the Strawberry Alarm Clock have a great story to tell, but I don't think that very few... I don't think there's many people who are going to sort of browse the bookshelves through all the Dylan books and Beatle books and see Strawberry Alarm Clock and say, whoa, and grab that. I mean, it, it's kind of a limited audience. So you have to consider that, too. Um, and then, once I've read everything I can that's available, and sort of started to visualize, started to conceptualize a story, and it, it's again, it, it's in a linear kind of a form. Is there a story development? Is there interest in this? Will it resonate? Um, if the artist is still alive, I'll contact the artist. Because how do it, you contact them? Oh, well, it's usually through through email. Email. Mm. Uh, it's it's amazing how many artists are are still out there waiting for you to contact them and fawn on them. Really? You know, some of the most yeah, some of the most surprising people are on there. I mean, take Burton Cummings. Okay, so he's he's playing tonight, right at, at Cooks Creek, the Grotto. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, you know, he's on the internet all the time. He's got his own site that he runs, and there's fan sites and he emails. I mean, he's he's out there, and you can get to him if you want to send him a fawning letter saying, I love your music. Um, he's out there, and he'll answer. Wow, that's wow. so cool. Yeah, and, and a Great lot of... Great info. Yeah, a, lot of these artists, yeah. a lot of these artists are available, where the, whereas in the 60s, there was no way you could get a hold of David Crosby from The mm. Birds and Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Now... It's easy. I would have never imagined. Oh I still God. think that these people are unaccessible. Yeah. Well, some are. I mean, you're not going to get to Bob Dylan. Yeah. You know, and, and you're not going to get to Bob Dylan. 
I mean, he, he would be, if I had an ideal interview, he would be my ideal interview. But what do you say to Bob Dylan? I mean, how do you... Would you ask Bob Dylan that hasn't been asked 400,000 times already? Well, do you have any questions that you would ask Bob Dylan that haven't been asked for? <laughs> we can practice right now for what yeah. comes across. Pretend that Jared's Bob Dylan. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a particular period of time that has always fascinated me about Bob Dylan, that's 64 to 67. And that's when he sort of started toying with and then went full-on electric. And I've always been fascinated with... Um, when he went electric and he toured the world with a Canadian band called the Hawks, who went on to become the band, you know, the night they drove old Dixie down and all of that, they became the band. Um, did he ever at any time, because he was booed every night, no, from, from Canada, the United States, England, Europe, Australia, he was booed every night for going electric because he was viewed as a traitor to his folk roots. He was, the, he was folk music's fair-haired boy. He was the voice of a generation you know, and he sang protest songs and, you know, songs with a social conscience and political conscience. And all of a sudden he started singing rock and roll and, and it was a, a huge betrayal. I would want to ask him if, if at any time he ever considered stopping what he was doing, you know, and realizing, well, they're not getting this. They don't like me doing this. I'll, you know, maybe I should pack it in mm -hmm. rather than keep going. I mean, the fact that he kept going... Um, speaks volumes to who he is, and, and his keeping going changed the course of rock and roll, without a doubt. How so? How so? Because it was a question of conviction. What Bob Dylan did was he, and, and that's why songs like Like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan are regarded as the greatest rock and roll song of all time, okay? Uh, that and like songs like Mr. Tambourine Man. What Bob Dylan did is he brought, um, he brought poetry to rock and roll, and I don't mean poetry like in June, I want a spoon with you under the moon. Okay. You know, moon, June, spoon kind of thing. Um, <laughs> but that, that's the way music that. was. You know, I want to hold your hand. Yeah. You know, she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was really limited, lame music. And it's still, even though it was rock and roll, with the rock and roll beat and the guys had cool hair and beetle boots, um, it was still the kind of music themes that 50s artists sang about. You know, boy meets girl, boy falls in love with girl, boy breaks up with girl, boy, you know, pines for girl, boy gets girl back. And reverse it, girl pines for boy. You know, it, it was girl-boy songs. Hmm. Bob Dylan changed all of that. And it, it happened really with a band called The Birds, because The Birds took a Dylan song called Mr. Tambourine Man, which was a folk song, acoustic guitar. Okay, hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. Uh, it appeared on Dylan's uh, 1965 album, Bringing it, Bringing it All Back Home, which was his transition album, where he had some folky acoustic stuff, and he started experimenting with a little bit of electric music. Um, so the Birds, who were five guys out of Los Angeles who didn't come from a rock and roll background, they were guys from folk groups. They grew up on folk music and bluegrass music. So they weren't the kind of guys who were in their garage playing Johnny Be Good, you know, in 1963. They were listening to... Well, folky Dylan and, you know, the, all other kind of folk artists of that particular era, they come out of the folk boom. They picked up on what Dylan was doing and what Dylan was saying, and they electrified it. They gave it an electric sound. They took a song, like, hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, which has about five verses, and they distilled it down to about a verse and a half or maybe two verses and a chorus. And there wasn't, there wasn't lyrics like that up to that point in rock and roll. 
you know, take me on a trip upon your magic swirling ship. You know, my senses have been stripped. I have nowhere to grip. You know, my boot heels to be wandering. To dance between the diamond skies with one hand waving free. You know, silhouetted by the sea, circled by the frozen sand of all memory and fate, driven, driven deep beneath the wave of crazy sorrow. Right. Who? The Beatles, <laughs> that's poetic. The Beatles didn't do that. <laughs> you know, the Stones didn't do that. The Birds introduced Dylan to a whole new audience, but also introduced Dylan to... I thought it was scratching my leg. They also introduced artists to the fact that you could say more than just girl-boy stuff or, or Moon June Spoon stuff. You could write lyrics of a poetic nature and of a literary nature. And you could write songs that didn't say directly, but implied. So Dylan changed the game for everybody. Everybody. It doesn't matter what genre of music you're in now, you still owe a debt to Bob Dylan for changing all of that. And, you know, when he, when he got his Nobel Laurier Prize, what was that, two years ago, and there was such a, in, in some circles, an, an outcry, oh my God, Bob Dylan. Um, I said, yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. He changed the game for everybody. He changed the game in music completely. Yeah. And so he was deserving of it. And I had a conversation last week with um, a friend of mine who was in town for the hymn sing reunion, because he used to sing in that, but he was a rocker guy. He said to me, uh, I, you know, he said, you know, ask me what I thought about the Dylan no, Nobel Prize. And I said, I was fine with that. I thought it was really, I thought it was really a no, Nobel, Nobel. I thought it was really a real noble move by the <laughs> Nobel Association to do that. Because Bob Dylan was, he's writing poetry. Yeah. And his, my friend, he said, well, I, he said he thought that Leonard Cohen should be first. That, that Leonard Cohen was a better poet than Bob. I, I, I can't argue that. I think, Bob, I think Leonard Cohen's an excellent poet. And in fact, he is a poet who realized, after writing books of poetry, realized that his message and his poetry could get a wider audience if he put it to music. So he taught himself to play guitar and began to sing his poetry. So in a sense, you could say he's a better poet, because Dylan never regarded himself as a poet, although the world did. Um, but my answer to my friend was, there couldn't have been a Leonard Cohen without Bob Dylan coming first. There couldn't have been a Joni Mitchell or a Neil Young or a Paul Simon and all of that without Bob Dylan coming first. Mm. Dylan opened the door. And whether Leonard Cohen's a better poet, whether Joni Mitchell is a better lyricist, they couldn't have happened without Bob opening that door first out of the, <laughs> again, Moon Spoon June songs to poetic lyrics, deeper lyrics, lyrics with more meaning to them, lyrics with innuendo, uh, all of that. It starts with Bob. Where was I when I started talking about I don't about know this? where this question started. <laughs> oh, yeah, what you would ask Bob Dylan. Yeah. Would be yeah. the question about... Yeah, whether, whether he ever considered, you know, kind of giving up on, on being booed every night and that the rock and roll angle maybe wasn't working. I mean, thank goodness he didn't. Hmm. And thank goodness he didn't abandon it because he stuck to his convictions. I mean, the funny thing was he would do two sets. The first set, this is all over the world he played, first set would be acoustic Bob, you know, doing his, uh, you know, blowing in the wind and the times they are a-changing and hard rain's going to fall and Maggie's Farm kind of stuff, acoustic-y, which, you know, which the folkies loved and he was, I mean, he's yeah. their guy. Um, and then they'd take a break and the band would, behind the curtains, the, the musicians would all be set up. 
you know, with these big fender amps and stuff, and the curtain would open, and Bob would be, you know, this loud, loud cacophony of electric guitars and organs and piano and Bob singing over it all. It was like an assault. But it was for rock and rollers. It was a liberating assault for folkies who came to see their, you know, their their guy, their god, their hero. It was an insult, and they would boo. So they clapping, polite, yay, Bob! In the first half of the show, <laughs> you know, comes out electric. How does it feel? And and they're boo boo. But the funny thing was, they would he, he, Bob would do his electric songs and boo boo boo. And there's one famous show he did in Manchester, the Manchester Trade Hall. In, in England, where he's about to start playing, I think it was, I think it's like a Rolling Stone anyway. But um, you hear someone in the audience yell out, Judas! You know, meaning sellout. Okay? The Bob Dylan was a sellout. Oh my gosh. And wow. Bob, <laughs> you can hear Bob. They, they've, it's, it's been repackaged, that show, as a live show. You can buy it as a CD, and they've enhanced the sound so you can hear the guy. It almost sounds like the guy's in, on the front row yelling up to Bob, but he's literally way in the back but Bob heard it and he says I don't believe you you're a liar and then he says to the band I don't know, can I say this yeah he turns to the band and says play fucking loud <laughs> you know just just to kind of prove this guy wrong uh, but it's funny they would they would do all Bob's you know kind of electric new songs and boo 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 and then they would do like a Rolling Stone which was a big hit it was like a number two pop single. And everybody's singing, oh, how does it feel to be on your own, like a Rolling Stone? And Bob would finish applause, and Bob would go to Tombstone Blues. Blue! Everybody oh go back gosh. to booing wow. again. It's interesting that it was segregated. He would do a full set acoustically, yep. as if like he knows like these things can't be brought together yet. Like exactly. they can't just seamlessly do this. Yeah, like you can see a musician nowadays, you know, switch from acoustic to their electric mid-set. But but he, had he done that, had he done that, he would have alienated the audience right away. If the first thing you saw when the curtains opened was Fender Showman amps <laughs> yeah. and a drum kit, even though Bob's out there playing acoustic guitar, already they'd be edgy. Yeah. So you're right, he's placating the audience with the folk stuff, but then coming back in the second half, and really he's sort of saying to the audience, this is who I am now. Yeah. Not who I was then. And I guess it's much less, you wouldn't know what's coming, right? You can't, like, just check, like, Twitter and see that the people in Australia are pissed, and you're like, oh, well, now I'm not going to go. That's right. Because every single time he tricked them. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, it's like a trick. Yeah, you're you're halfway there, you're invested in it. So, of all of the musicians, artists, bands that you've written about, which is the best-selling story? Well, great question. Thank you. Yeah, it actually is. You know, it's one of the things I never do is keep track of numbers because it doesn't. I, I, I'm I'm not as interested in like you know keeping track of oh this one didn't do as well so let's let's find a way to promote it more or something like that. Um, probably the Randy Backman biography I did called Taking Care of Business and it's it's in its third edition and it's called Still Taking Care of Business because he is still <laughs> taking care of business. Um, that's probably the biggest seller. Ian and Sylvia, called Four Strong Winds, was a big seller as well. Four of the books I did were on the Canadian bestsellers list. Um, the Randy Backman, uh, Ian and Sylvia, and I ghost wrote Randy's two Vinyl Tap books. He did two books, Randy Backman's Vinyl Tap, where he stories from his life and career, and was the first one. And the second one was called Tale... The first one was called, you know, Randy Backman's Vinyl... Stories from Vinyl Tap. The second one was called Tales from Beyond the Tap. And it's stuff he couldn't talk about on, on the radio show because it didn't fit into his format. And it was in the form of 20 questions that he had been asked over the years that 
he couldn't answer on the radio show that he was now answering. So those were in the bestseller list. I ghost wrote those, so I count those as two of my books on the bestseller list. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, probably the Backman book because his name, his name certainly resonated in Canada. Uh, sales sales around the world were limited. I guess in terms of worldwide, the Neil Young biography that I did really did well worldwide because it was the first time that, that Neil had ever really talked about or anybody had ever written about his uh, early years in Winnipeg and in Thunder Bay you know, and in Toronto before he went down to uh, L.A. By the way, I, one of the other books I did, and you asked me earlier um, who I'd written about, one of the books I did do was on the Buffalo Springfield. And that was Neil Young's kind of first taste of success. You probably know their song called Stop Hey, What's That Sound? Yeah. Known as For What It's Worth. I mean, there isn't a, a, a 60s documentary or film or musical or anything that doesn't employ that song in some way because it's, 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 it's an anthem of the 1960s. And so the Buffalo Springfield was his first taste of success. Um, the Neil book was interesting. And, and I, he invited me down to his ranch in California to interview him. And, you know, one of the first things I said to him was, how come no one's ever written about this? And he said, because no one's ever asked me. Really? It was as simple as that. And I had done my homework and I had done my research, so I was able to, to set the stage for him for the interviews. And that's, that's, that's what a good interview is, is where you're giving them the context and they're giving you the color commentary. You know, you're not saying, so Neil, when did you play Glenwood Community Club? I'm not going to remember that. But if I say you played, you know, in, in, in June 6th of 1964, the Squires played Glenwood Community Club. Do you remember playing there? Yeah, man, I had a checkered shirt on and I had my, my Gretsch for the first time and we were playing Farmer John and I really, you know, this kind of stuff. It was interesting to sit down with him in his living room. This is a guy that's played, you know, Woodstock, Monterey Pop, Live Aid, Farm Aid, you know, the Madison Square Garden, you know, some of the <laughs> biggest venues in the world. I mean, he's iconic. And he's sitting there getting all excited on the edge of his seat telling me about playing Glenwood Community Club in St. Vitel. You know, and the songs he was playing. And, you know, it, because for him, it, and I find this with a lot of artists, it's the early years that mean more to them than the success. When you hit that level of success, it's a whirlwind. It's, it's, you're just in this whirlwind, you know, moving from city to city and recording and albums and photo shoots and all of that. But when you're starting out, there's the excitement and the hunger. And Neil even said to me, he said, you know, I, my first gig I ever played live was at Earl Grey Community Club in Winnipeg, you know, wow. in Fort Rouge. In January, was that? January 1961. And he said, you know, on that stage that night, the fire was lit inside me to want to make music my life. So, you know, if I ask him about Woodstock, he's been, you know, a few vagaries and a few anecdotes. But if I ask him about playing the Cellar Club in downtown Winnipeg, you know, back in 1963, oh man, he could just excitement and, and detail, because these guys, for the, as I said, it, it, it's it's their connection to the enthusiasm and the hunger and the desire, and the first times. I mean, everybody remembers their first times of doing whatever, and this for them is their first time. Fred Turner, best story I think of all that era. Fred Turner of BTO, Backman Turner Overdrive, played in Winnipeg for years. I saw him in a half dozen bands back in the day. You know, he's a guy that's played Madison Square Garden and some of the biggest venues in the world with BTO. Um, I asked him about his first early gigs and he got all excited. He said, you know, the first time I ever played in a band, we played Orioles Community Club. And we were about four guys all plugged into one little Fender amp, and the amp was just vibrating with the sound. <laughs> and he said it was so noisy on stage, we had to kick each other in the ankles when it was time to change chords. 
because we couldn't hear anything. And he said we were paid a chocolate bar and a Coke at the end of the night. Wow. And he said that was it. I mean, that was, that <laughs> was it, he said. You know, that was because that was just so much excitement. And, you know, things like Randy Bachman's first gig ever with a band called The Embers playing at uh, Edmund Partridge Junior High, on, on which is now West Kelowna Collegiate on, on Main Street North. And Randy and Gary Peterson, and Gary Peterson was a couple of years younger, and Gary was playing drums, and Randy was playing guitar, his first electric guitar. He didn't even have an amp. He had to plug into their, their little um, tape recorder that was used in, in the school. And, and it's a Christmas dance, and Randy's cord gets wrapped up around the Christmas tree. And he's playing, <laughs> and he start, yeah, they're playing instrumental music, and he starts moving forward to the audience, and the, he can't see... But unbeknownst to him, the tree is starting to bend because he's pulling it with his guitar cord. And the audience is going, <gasps> and Randy thinks it's for him. <laughs> so he walks out, they like me, kind of thing, moves further and further. The audience is going, ah, and then the tree falls down oh. and unplugs him. And that was the end of the gig. Oh, but it's, so it's those kind of memories that, that mean more to him than playing Madison Square Garden. Because Madison Square Garden was just another gig in a list of gigs you know, when you finish the gig, go back to the hotel, catch some Z's, you know, and the next day you're on a plane going to somewhere else to play a big gig. There's those early ones that they remember the best, and it was fun to talk to Neil all about that period of time. I mean, we stayed up late into the night at his house, you know, going on and on. And again, he was full of detail about playing in Winnipeg and full of detail about seeing Winnipeg bands like Chad Allen and the Reflections and the Shondells and all these other bands that everybody else saw. And, you know, you never realized, or at least... Lots of people never realized that Neil Young was standing beside them, or Neil Young may have been on the stage with the Squires, because he was just another guy. He was just another kid with a guitar, hmm. except that he had a vision that took him out of Winnipeg and took him further than his contemporaries, who ended up just kind of staying here. I mean, Neil didn't see himself as a big fish uh, in a small pond. He wanted to move on to other ponds, whereas a lot of the musicians, a lot of his contemporaries back in 63 and 64, were content to remain big fish in a small pond. He was willing to take it further. He was willing to take those chances and make those sacrifices. I mean, he said, I had to leave a lot of friends behind in pursuit of my dream, but that's just the way it was. And he said as well to me, he said, you know, I had to shit on a lot of people to get where I am now, but there was just no other way to do it because mm. I was so singularly focused. If you didn't see it my way, you were gone. So do you think it's possible for a big fish in a small pond to still have an impact on music? If you were to stay in Winnipeg, do you think you could still have Neil Young-type success? Also, oh, no. a little like addition to that would be also, are there bands that were big fish in a small pond being in Winnipeg and could have made it, in your opinion? like Oh, that, but didn't. But they didn't. Chose to they, stay. Just stayed. Yeah. they chose to stay. Yeah. Um, okay, I'll answer your, your question first. No. <laughs> I, well, no and yes. Yes and no. Because the game has changed. You know, the tried and true method back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, even into the 90s, was you put out a record with a major label. You got attention from a major label, whether it was demos or, or playing live. The major label invested in you, put out your music, and then you went on the road and hustled it. And, you know, even, even in, like, in 1973, when Backman Turner Overdrive finally were rejected by 21 record labels, finally Mercury Records signed them and took a chance on them. Um, they played, in that year alone, 300 shows in 365 days. And those shows could be Saturday night in Denver, Sunday night in Little Rock, Arkansas, you know, Thursday in Burlington, Vermont. And you were just 
on the go. I mean, your records, you know, the fun thing, your records getting airplay in uh, Wyoming. Can you get out there and do a show? Okay, and away they went. I mean, that's just kind of how the, how the business worked. You, you made a record, you hit the road. Nowadays, it's not like that. You can make a record without having to sign with a major label and sign your soul away to a major label because, in effect, that's what you're doing. Um, you can make your own records and you can market them yourself on the internet. Um, and you can build a following and you can have an impact beyond Winnipeg because the, the, the game board is now much, much broader. Okay. Back in 64, when Neil Young and the Squires were playing Crescentwood Community Club, the only people that knew they were playing there were if you were from Crescentwood, or if someone on the radio said, hey, Neil Young and the Squires playing Crescentwood Community Club this, this Saturday night. Now, I mean, you can put out your music and everybody has access to it. So that game has changed. Can you have success and an impact beyond Winnipeg by staying in Winnipeg? Yes. I, if you're going to then ask me, give me an example, that's tougher. I, can't, I always look at propaganda as an, as an example. Those, those are guys who, they're very staunch in their convictions, very staunch, and, and they're always wary of, of, of selling out or being compromised in any way at all. They are in Winnipeg. They're guys who are in their 40s now, but they've stuck true to what they do, and they've built an audience beyond Winnipeg, and they've sold significant numbers of records, not not necessarily in the gold or platinum level, but significant enough records to maintain a career without having to sell their souls to a record label or necessarily play bottom of a bill at a, a, before a drive-in movie in, in Moose Jaw kind of yeah. thing, which you know, BTO did. They played before drive-in movies. They played tractor pulls. <laughs> their music, but you can consider that, that's who their music kind of appeals to tractor pull kind of guys yeah. um, so you can tractor pull into some tunes that's, that's you great can, that's a great afternoon well, you know, it's interesting about BTO just as a side stone uh, Randy said you know at their concerts it'd be like 90% guys he always called them he said we were the we were the Tim Allen tool time crowd that came to see us guys we weren't a chicks band. I mean, we were big, you know, a couple of great big guys, him and Fred Turner, and uh, they, they they didn't have the glamour to them, but their music appealed to guys, you know, taking care of it, you know, and that kind of thing. <laughs> um, so where where were we? Where, okay, so you can do that. Yes, I think I answered that. And your your question was, are there a any band, acts who did it? A big fish it? in a small pond that could have been a. A pawn jumper. <laughs> pawn jumper, yeah. An example of a potential pawn jumper. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there certainly were. I, I remember a band called Brother who played in Winnipeg. They were only together for about four, maybe four months. And I was in a band that played a couple of shows with them. And we were like opening act. What they was the were, name of your band? Oh, I was in a whole bunch of bands. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the band that opened for Brother, we were called Pig Iron. Pig, you know what Pig Iron is? No. When you're making iron into rails or structures or whatever you get it as ingots that whoever smelts whoever smelts this is more than you needed to know whoever smelts the iron they smelt it into ingots which mm-hmm. is like almost like big tr- chunks triangles of, 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 of iron and then it's sent to the company that then makes steel rails or makes frames or whatever okay those are called pig iron that's called pig iron rough iron mm-hmm. are called pig iron so we were pig iron. We were heavy blues, pig iron. Anyway. <laughs> um, <a> great name. <laughs> the, um, 
Brother. Brother. Okay, Brother were together about four months, and they... They were the first band in Winnipeg. This is 1970s, 69 into 1970. The first band in Winnipeg to ever do all original material. You had bands, of course, doing some original material, but you still did cover. I mean, that was expected. You did cover songs. Um, they said, nope, we're not going to do that. They'd all, they, they were three guys. It was a trio. And they had all played in, other, in successful other bands. You know, f- local bands. The Fifth and um, Gettysburg Address and the Crescendos. Um, these guys had all been in those bands and they had done the top 40 band kind of thing and they said, screw that, we're going to write all our own songs. And they did, and they were really good. They might have been able to do something. They might have got, been able to go beyond Winnipeg. But what happened was in May of 1970, Randy Backman was ousted from the Guess Who and the guys in the Guess Who were in New York, the Phil Maurice, just about to play their gig at the Phil Maurice, the last gig with Randy, and they phoned Winnipeg and they phoned Kurt Winter from Brother and said, would you like to join the Guess Who? Oh. So Kurt took the songs that they had written and were doing in Brother, like Hand Me Down World, like Bus Rider, like Do You Miss Me Darling, like Rock and Roll or Steam, and brought them to the Guess Who. So we got to hear those songs outside of the Brother context. Wow. But Brother, I think Brother could so have had neat. an impact. Brother could have done something, except that they were... They were the kind of guys who were, weren't comp- were, they were uncompromising as well. And I don't know if, if the music industry could have molded them into something that was commercially saleable. I think, um, I think the Gettysburg Address were a really good band that might have been able to go beyond Winnipeg uh, at that time. I think there were probably a few artists. Uh, Rick Pearson, I'll mention. Rick Pearson recorded a song called Merrily in 1973, 73 or 74, and it was, it was perfect for, for AM radio. I think that song could have been huge. It could have been a, a huge international hit, except it was done on a tiny little label here in Winnipeg. It probably only pressed 500 copies. But that song could have been a contender for sure. And Rick being able to write his own songs, I think he could have had a career. I really do. Now, I, I talked to you a little bit about um, this idea of selling your soul to the record label. Yeah. That's... That's the way the business works. And I, I do these things called Magical Musical History Tours of Winnipeg. And I do them every Great couple, name, couple by of the weeks. Way. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Paul hasn't sued me yet. Um, <laughs> yeah. well, after this, he might. You know, yes. We have a very wide audience. You never we'll know. Tag on this one. Um, and I, I, you know, we go to different sites and places and things. And, and I always, there, there's a period of time between the St. Vitale Museum, which has a huge display on the Guess Who. Jim Cale, who grew up in St. Vitale, donated all this gold, platinum, and silver records and all his Juno awards to this museum. This is a tiny little museum in an f- old fire station. Nobody knows about it, but in it, this great, huge collection. So we go from there to Kurt Winter's house on Chevrier Boulevard, because that's part of one of the Guess Who albums was So Long Bannatine, Hello My Chevrier Home. And he lived and died in that house. But there's a long stretch, kind of Bishop Grandin or whatever. So I do a little, little thing because there's a DVD that runs through the whole, the whole um, tour. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, like for example, when we get to Burton Cummings' childhood home, there's pictures of Burton as a little kid in the house and that sort of thing. And when we get to Neil Young's house on Grosvenor, there's there's there are only three pictures of him ever playing guitar in that house, and I have all three of them, and I show them and talk about them and whatever. But there's a long stretch where where there's nothing that we're seeing. We're just kind of making a connection from one stop to the next stop. And so I talk about artists and, you know, have come from Manitoba that aren't necessarily a part of the tour. And one of them is Chantel Kreviazuk. Chantel Kreviazuk, in the 1990s, signed a $1.5 million contract with Sony Music. And everybody thought she was a millionaire. 
because it, and it made the newspaper oh so it goes from nothing she literally had never played before a large audience before she was signed on the strength of her songwriting so it was like oh she's a millionaire now and I interviewed her years later for my Maiden Manitoba book and she said you know I had to live with that I had to live with people thinking I was a millionaire because they didn't understand the music business the music business when she signs for 1.5 million it's a loan if you go to the bank tomorrow or Tuesday and take out a loan you have to pay it back. <laughs> yeah. And when the way the record company works, is record business works, is they're loaning you that money. And you're going to use that money to make your album. You're going to use that money to make a video and, you know, maybe some promotion, whatever. But you're not going to make a penny until the record label gets its $1.5 back. So it might take you a couple of albums to, to be able to recoup, to be able to pay off that loan and start making money. Yeah. There are so many stories. I, I do a course, a one-night course, and it's usually fairly popular at McDally Robinson, called Taking Care of the Music Business. Who really makes the money? And the artist is the bottom of the food chain. The artist is always at the bottom of the food chain. Who's at the top? Who's at the top? Well, the record label. The label. Absolutely. The suits. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure, the men in the suits. And, you know, so she had to earn that $1.5 million in sales to pay out to, to, to go to the record label for, before she ever made any money fortunately for her she had a couple of hit records albums sold well and after about the second album she'd paid off her debt I but the second she, one. yeah say, yeah about the second album I think because um, Surrounded was a hit and I'm leaving on a jet plane she did that for some movie so she recouped their investment in her but that's that's the way the business works they, they advance you the money and you don't make a penny until they get it back um they're investing in you. And it used to be, I remember artists from the 60s telling me this, record labels, you could go up and sign 10 artists and you could take a chance. Well, that's pretty good. Maybe they got a hit in them and we'll take a chance on them. You could sign 10, 10 bands, 10 recording artists, and if one made it, their success paid for the other nine. Wow. But nowadays it's so expensive. To launch an artist nowadays by a record label and they're, 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 they're dinosaurs anyway but, but just the way the method always worked for a major record label to take an artist take them in the studio develop them as songwriters um, you know get studio time which isn't cheap anymore and put a video together and get them out on the road could cost you a million dollars so record labels are less likely to take a chance on an artist if you're not having a huge hit right out of the chute with the first record they're going to drop you and that's the case in in a number of artists, including Manitoba artists. Um, Amanda Stott, in the 1990s, from Brandon, Manitoba, was signed to a huge recording contract on the day of her graduation from high school. So she was 17 years old. Um, Monsters. Yeah, and the record label sunk. <laughs> now all, that I think that, yeah. <laughs> the, the five minutes of info you gave us, I'm like... What, what terrible what did you do so this? They, they, they had a lot of faith in her and they pumped a lot of money into her yeah. and her videos were on TV and she was on tour meanwhile all of, any money that she was making was going to pay off the record label mm. and in the end she sold only 6,000 copies of her album so she was dropped whereas in the 60s I'll take an example of someone like Bonnie Raitt before Bonnie Raitt had the big breakthrough uh, album and I and she won five Grammys for I don't know we even can't remember the name of it, but uh, let, let just uh, something to talk about became her big hit song okay and she won five five Grammys it was her fifth album 
because the record label, Reprise Records, were willing to build her career. First album will introduce you, second label, the so second album, you know, we'll improve the songwriting, third album, well, maybe we'll get some single action, fourth album, maybe a couple of singles, fifth album, you know, it's going to be the breakout. Yeah. And it was. Nowadays, you don't get that nurturing anymore because it's too expensive. Yeah, we need to hit now. Yeah, we need to hit now to pay back all the money we've pumped into you. Yeah. And you know, it's amazing the number of artists who have had hit records or sold millions of records. There's some band called 30 Seconds Over Venus or something like 30 that. 30 Seconds to Mars? That's it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, because I don't know them. They sold over a million copies of their album. And, and never made a penny, and we're still in debt to their record label. Um, I'll give you a good example of all this, too. Is, uh, Alana Miles had a huge international hit with a song called Black Velvet. Yeah, Black Velvet in the Little that. Boy's Eyes. It's actually about Elvis Presley, Black Velvet. Mm -hmm. Christopher Guest wrote it, and he used to be a VJ on Much Music. Okay, He wrote the song. Alana Miles recorded it. Three and a half million copies sold all over the world. It's a huge song. She never made a penny. She has never to this day made a penny off that song because she's never earned back her advance mm -hmm. because they charge everything back to her things like xeroxing paper clips postage everything got charged back to her she's a very bitter lady and wouldn't sing that song for a number of years but christopher guest probably made hundred fifty thousand dollars on that record because he wrote it mm -hmm. wow he has no debt to the record label he gets his money she doesn't trash yeah. <laughs> well, that, but that's the way the record business works. Is he who oh, the, the, old the old axiom is he who writes the songs makes the money. It's also he who owns the songs makes the money. Mm -hmm. You could own a song. You could own the copyright and publishing to, to a song and make the money. See, the way the record business works is, let's talk about singles. 50% um, of what a single earns in money goes to the songwriter or songwriters. 50% goes to what's called publishing. And publishing is very outdated and antiquated, but it goes back to the turn of the last century, like 1900, where the sole source of income for a song was sheet music. Because you didn't play records. I mean, there weren't records and they weren't played on the radio. The sole source of income for a song was, was sheet music. And, you know, we had songs who could sold them, a million sheet music, because that's how people want, oh, I love, you know, Alexander's Ragtime Band. I'm going to go out and buy the sheet music to it. So that's how a song made money. But in the 1950s, when radio started playing music, records, then that became the source of income, is records played on the radio and records sold. Okay? But publishing still remained. And what a publishing company does, and sometimes if you ever look at, if you ever have an album here, and I don't know if it's going to be on here, but it's going to say on here somewhere, somewhere on here, it's going to say <laughs> who publishes the songs. Oh, yeah. And it's just like Whitmark and Sons, or, or they may have their own song publishing. Rush may have their own song publishing company. But it's ASCAP or BMI who collect that money for them. And you enter into an agreement with a publishing company because you don't have time to follow. Because songwriters get money, and artists get money every time their record's played on the radio. Plus, if it's used in something, you know, if, it, if it's a, if, and in record sales. So you contract to a publishing company to collect that money and they give you you know and and they'll give you a portion of that but they keep a big chunk of it a situation like um, these eyes by the guess who 
It sold a million and a half copies in its first year. It's still played on the radio. It's still used in commercials. It still sells. And it, and it, it sells in, you know, hits of the 70s kind of thing. You know, blah, 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 these eyes. And that, that's all revenue. Backman and Cummings, let's say the record, they earn a dollar, okay? Backman and Cummings get 50 cents. The publisher gets 50 cents. But in the 1980s, Burton Cummings bought the publishing. Oh. He owns the publishing to that song. So if the song... If, you, if, if, if the song earns a dollar, just to be simple, Burton Cummings gets 25 cents for having written the song and 50 cents for the publishing. So a song he and Randy Bachman wrote together, Burton Cummings gets 75 cents and Randy Bachman gets 25 cents. Interesting. And All because he bought that publishing. Yeah, company. yeah. And that's the basis of this long-standing lawsuit that they've had. It's always about the money. They have been in and out of court for decades and they like each other, they hate each other, they like each other, they hate each other. Um, because Randy said that Randy claims that in 1967, he and Burton had a handshake agreement to share the publishing if it ever came available, Ooh. and it did become available. And Burton bought it and didn't tell Randy. Oh, it was a handshake. It agreement. was a handshake. Oh, so no. you you take a song like American Woman, which is <laughs> oh still gosh. played everywhere, and then Lenny Kravitz covers it and sells two million copies, and it's in a movie, the Austin Powers movie or yeah. something, and it's in the movie American Beauty. Burton, Burton's making seventy-five cents in every dollar. Wow! <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> so he, Burton, never you know, Burton, Burton bought a house on Wellington in Wellington Crescent on Park Boulevard for cash. And it's <laughs> yeah. it's it's the, cash. yeah, it, it's the Lenny Kravitz That's an American house. Woman house. Yeah, yeah, there we go, yeah. Lenny Kravitz house. Yeah, the Lenny Kravitz house. <laughs> it, you know, oh, and, and that's the way the business wow. is and was, and it used to be. It used to be that the songwriters got their money first. So if you, like uh, Crash, Crash Test Dummies, uh, Brad Roberts wrote most of the songs in that band, right? So second album sold four million copies. So before the band got their royalties, because the band aren't going to get any royalties until any debts to the record label are paid off. But before that, the songwriter gets his or her 93 cents for every song. That's got to create animosity. Oh, you better believe it. You're the only one, or if it's two people out of a four-person band who are writing the lyrics. Well, and I'll give you some examples of that, too. But that's the way it worked. The songwriter always got his or her money first. The record business changed. It changed about 15 years ago to 360 deals. And if you're signing with Sony nowadays or BMG or whoever the record labels are nowadays, they're going to sign you to a 360 deal. And a 360 deal, you know what, you know, I'm looking at that, that picture behind you of the circle. That's what a 360 deal is. <laughs> it's a circle. The, the 360 deal is the record label. And it's actually a record, too. Oh, it is. Oh, it yeah. is, too. It's a, okay. it's a record on the wall Perfect. there. So. The that way it works is... It's a 360 record right there. <laughs> the, um, the way it works is the, is the record company will advance you the money. But, not, but rather than just recoup on the sales of the record, they're also going to take a chunk of your tour money they're going to take a chunk of your merchandise money, and they're going to take a chunk of your writing money. So if there's a guy in the band like Brad Roberts writing songs, if they were signing a contract today and it was a 360 song, Brad's not going to get his money either until that debt to the record label is paid off. Wow. Back before 360 deals, it was just they're going to take from your royalties. Oh. But you can still tour. You can still sell T-shirts, mm-hmm. you know, all that sort of thing. Yeah. Nowadays, it's because they're putting so much more money in. They're having to put a million dollars or more, a million and a half dollars in they want to ensure that they can they can enjoin or take um, from all your sources. 
Because they want to get their money back. So they skim off the top of any money that's made. Yep. And you are therefore an indentured servant, a.k.a. slave, to the record label. Jesus. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I mean, they don't call it the music business for nothing. And, and Gaylene Dempsey, who used to run um, Manitoba Film and Sound kind of thing, um, Manitoba, it's now called Manitoba Music, where you can go in and get help and get assistance and support. You know, as a Manitoba, starting out Manitoba artist. She always used to say when young bands would come in to her and say, what do we need to be successful in the music business? She would always say, get an MBA, a Master's of Business Administration. Because it's a business, and you're going to get ripped off. Wow. Know the business. That's Because you, you're going to get ripped off. And there's so many stories that, again, that I, I, I tell about and I talk about. Um, I, I'll give you one more. Is it okay? Are these stories okay oh, yeah. to tell? Yeah, these are great. Okay. As long as you want to talk to us, we're here for it. Um, Richard Berry in 1959 was a struggling R&B singer in L.A., and he made a 45 on a tiny little local label. He probably pressed 500 copies of it. And the B-side was a song that he wrote about a guy who's sitting in a bar and he's recounting to the bartender his story about missing his girlfriend and they're in the Caribbean or somewhere and he wants to sail back to see her again. Okay? Richard Berry's record went nowhere. Okay? Richard Berry, you know, his music career kind of came and went in 1959. But a very savvy, a very smart music business lawyer came to Richard Berry in about 1961, maybe, and said, I want to buy that song, the B-side. I want to buy it. I'm going to own it. I'm going to buy it from you. It didn't sell anything. It's not worth anything to you. But I'll give you money to take that song. And Richard Berry was about to get married and he needed $700 for an engagement ring. So he sold the song for $700. The song Lock, Stock and Barrel, writing credit, publishing, everything belonged to this lawyer guy who was probably tone deaf, but he was a smart business person. That song was Louie Louie. Louie Louie is the most recorded rock and roll song in history. Everybody has done that song. Wow. Everybody oh. in the world. I taught at St. John's Ravenscourt. We have a band program starts in grade six, and the kids with their tubas and clarinets and saxophones, first song they learn is Louie Louie. Right. Because it's easy. A, 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 D, D, E minor, E minor, D, D. And it, it, it's, it's ubiquitous. 1963, the Kingsmen record the song and sell two and a half million copies of it. Marching bands play that song at oh the Rose Bowl. God. Every band in the world does that song, plays that song. 750. Yeah. So how much money did he lose out on, do you know? Okay, well, well he lost millions. In the, in the early 1980s... <laughs> That's a lot of diamond rings. Yeah. In, the, in the early 1980s... But again, it's this idea that rock and roll has no... I mean, it, it's disposable. It's not going to last forever. Who the hell is going to listen to Louie Louie in the 1980s? Um, in, in the 1980s, a different lawyer came to Richard Berry, and he was living... He was on welfare in Watts. And a lawyer came to him, knocked on his door, and said, I think I can get the rights back. Because I think you were duped. I think, I think we can go to court and get the rights back. We can't make any of the millions of dollars that the record has made up to that point, because that money's gone. But if we get the rights back, we'll be able to get the money from that point on. And Richard Berry went, okay. And the guy said, but I want 50% of it. I'll, I'll take this to court and fight it, but I, you know, I, want, I, want, I want half that money. Half of zero is zero for Richard Berry. He's never made anything on it anyway, past the wedding yeah. ring or engagement ring. So he said, sure. 
So the lawyer went to court and won. Mm-hmm. And the next year, Richard Berry went to his mailbox and pulled out a check for $163,000. That's half of what that song earned the year before. Wow, so he was losing a lot. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. He lost wow. a fortune on all that. And his story is one of hundreds of stories like that, of artists who got screwed. John Fogarty from Green's Clearwater Revival never made a penny from his song since he didn't read the contract that said, you don't get any royalties on this songwriting. And that's why for years he refused to play any Creedence Clearwater revivals. I mean, we're talking about, you know, Proud Mary rolling on the river yeah. and those kind of songs. Because he, he, he got ripped off. And the stories of artists who got ripped off are more common than the stories of artists who didn't get ripped off. Hmm. Because you're siding with guys in suits who know the business and you don't. Yeah. Graham Parsons and Chris Hillman, when they formed the Flying Burrito Brothers, they were probably stoned when they went into the business meeting to sign with A&M Records. And A&M, As their name indicates, probably <laughs> yeah. A&M says, okay, well, you know, we'll give you this advance and whatever, you know, and, and what about your publishing? And they said, ah, uh, you can have the publishing, you know. And their lawyer, who's representing them, leans over and says, are you sure? Yeah, it's a publisher. <laughs> and she was a female lawyer. She leaned over and said, you're going to regret this. And they did. I mean, the Flying Burrito Brothers may not resonate with you, but they're like the founders of country rock, and Graham Parsons is like the, the godfather of country rock. He died at age 27 from an overdose, and he's like the, the Tennessee Williams of country rock. Um, they, their song, Sin City, this old town's you know, filled with sin, it'll swallow you in, has been recorded by artists as diverse as Elvis Costello and uh, Linda Ronstadt, dozens of other artists. Mm-hmm. And sure, Hillman, who's still alive, and Parsons, who's dead, but his estate, they still get a writing royalty. But the publishing all goes to A&M Music, to their Elmo Music, music publishing arm, because they didn't think, ah, publishing, what's that? Because they didn't understand what it was. Right. And that really was the case with a lot of artists who said, the Beatles. The Beatles got ripped off in publishing because they didn't know what it was, and they didn't understand that half the money went there. So when they released their first record, uh, Brian Epstein, the first 45, you know, Love Me Do, uh, Brian Epstein, their manager, who was equally naive about the music business, took them to this really smart, slick guy named Dick James, who ran Dick James Music in London. And uh, Brian said to him, well, what is this about publishing? And Dick James said, don't worry, I'll take care of that for you. And he owned the Beatles publishing for years. Hmm. So think of how many records the Beatles sold, how much money Dick James made. Dick James probably made more money than the individual Beatles. Wow. And it took the Beatles years to finally understand it. And, and they went to a, Paul McCartney went to a choir in the 1990s to get his catalog of songs to the publishing. And it was, it was for sale for $42 million. And Michael Jackson bought it. Oh. I remember that. Michael yeah. Jackson. Well, like, I don't remember it happening, but I remember hearing. And, and yeah. Paul McCartney was very bitter about that. But you I see, Paul McCartney's, <laughs> Paul McCartney's cheap, and he's notoriously cheap. And he wanted to, the if music was for sale from um, ATV, which was owned by Lou, Sir Lou Grade, who was a, you know, kind of a media mogul in England. And he was selling it off. And the, the price was $42 million he was asking. And Paul wanted to negotiate that. You know, Paul said, well, I'll give you 35 or $36 million. Whereas Michael Jackson said $42 million, yes, you can have it. Because Michael yeah. Jackson was, you know, had more money than brains at that point, And, you know, buy whatever he can. And he bought the songs. Because Paul didn't step up and didn't meet that. He thought he could lowball them. I, I'm just trying to imagine that situation. You know, you love the Beatles. 
yeah, like, I want to own this music. And you're outbidding the guy who made this music. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. like, you don't really love the Beatles, yeah. then, if you're yeah. going to do this. So I'm going to buy it from him so that he can't have it. It's all mine now. Like, that's kind of a weird relationship, I think. <laughs> I read something that, uh, that Paul McCartney was trying to explain this the publishing and like all of the to Michael Jackson yeah to Michael Jackson saying that like yeah you just gotta buy all these like catalogs and music rights and you're just making money and then Michael Jackson's like oh yeah actually I heard (laughs) it was actually an interview with Paul McCartney Somebody was asking Paul McCartney about it, and he did a great impression of Michael Jackson. And he said, I'm going to buy your songs. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly how it was. And Paul said, "Oh no, go away! No, I'm going to buy your songs." Yeah, yeah. and and he did. Um, <laughs> another example, and I don't want to be a great this. impression by Paul McCartney about <laughs> Michael Jackson. I played it back a few times. It was really, really funny. It is. It's very very good. Um, <laughs> I don't want to beat this to death, but I'll give you one more story. Um, there was a Zulu man mm-hmm. in the 1920s and 30s who was a singer. His name was Solomon Linda. And he lived in like Soweto or one of the townships in South Africa. And he had a vocal group and they went into a recording studio to sing a song that Solomon had written. And they recorded it in this little recording studio somewhere in, in you know, the outbacks of, of, of South Africa. And um, they, Solomon Linda was paid $10 for the song. Fast forward to the 1960s, early 1960s, actually late 50s. Pete Seeger starts playing the song and he records it but he changes the name of the song slightly Um, the tokens record it and sell a million copies of it fast forward into the 1980s a Broadway play a Broadway production uses the song as its theme song a movie that that is, is seen by millions of people and earns half a billion dollars has the song for a theme Solomon Linda, who wrote the song, died in poverty, and he died of the flu because he couldn't afford any kind of medication. He died in, a, in like a, a tar paper shack. Well, his song went on to become something that even you know and everybody knows. The Lion Sleeps Tonight. No way. Whim away, a whim away, a whim away. Oh, know? I'm never going <laughs> to... I'm never gonna hear that song the same. Yeah. The guy and the guy who bought the song was a smart businessman who by his old admission is tone deaf. Can't sing or anything. But he has a huge yacht called Wimaway. Oh it's all the money that he's made. Insult to injury. So I mean it it is a business and that's something that a lot of a lot of musicians don't get. Mm. That it's a business. And I said to you it's the, the battles are always about money. It's because years later that that the others in the band discover that hey Joe here was making ten times the money that we were making John Fogarty, they just don't tell the other ones uh, I guess so or they're naive um, John Fogarty from Creedence Clearwater Revival they sold millions of records okay millions of records John's writing all the songs so they think he's making all the money except that his contract says he's not getting any money but they want in on the action the other guys in the band the drummer and the bass player mm-hmm. so they say to John look we've got songs we're songwriters too we want to put our songs on the album. Well, Fogarty knew these guys couldn't write on the same level that he wrote, but he acquiesced to them, knowing that the album would bomb, that their songs would stink, and then they'd leave them alone. But what he was doing was sacrificing the band. So they went in and recorded an album, and they split it three ways, in that Fogarty did three songs, the bass player wrote three songs, and the drummer wrote three songs. And the album died a 
death. You know, we're selling Creedence album ever, and the band broke up soon after. But what Fogarty was doing was he was sacrificing the band to prove a point. He was saying to these other two guys, you, you, know, you can't write like I write. You want a piece of the action? You want to write? Okay, we'll put your songs on the album and we'll see how well it sells. <laughs> so he, it's like he shot himself in the foot, yeah. but he was proving a point to these guys. You know, and he, he's a nasty person anyway. When Creedence Clearwater Revival were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he refused to allow the other two guys to be on stage with him. What? Really? When they were being inducted. I mean, this is a ceremony to, you know, to say what, you know, you have a great career and, you know, you've had an impact. But I, these two guys, nah, they can't be up here with me. Very quickly, I want to touch on... I don't know how long I've been going here. The, the, <laughs> yeah, I, I just want to touch on it quickly because I've always found it confusing, but... He's touring, but just under a different name now, playing the same music, correct? Fogarty tours under his own name, and he does the Creedence songs. But the mm. other two guys in Creedence put a band together called Creedence Clearwater Revisited. Yes, that's Rather than Creedence Clearwater Revival. So they're allowed to play? Like they're both he sued to play? them. He has sued them a couple of times over that. <laughs> yeah, understandably. <laughs> you know, owning a name is a big deal. Um, when Jim Cale left the Guess Who, he bought the Guess Who name. He bought it for peanuts, because... In all, their, in all their heyday, the big million-selling singles, in 1970, the Guess Who sold more records than the entire Canadian music industry combined. And every artist that released a record that year in the Guess Who sold more in total. Oh, um, they had never trademarked or registered the name. Wow. So Cale did, and he owns the name. So if, if any kind of product is being put out under the Guess Who name, he has to get paid for it. Smart. The, the Guess Who, when they went out on their running back through Canada tour in 2000, the reunion tour, Kale stayed home. They hired a bass player, Bill Wallace, to play. They paid him 20 grand to do the tour, a couple of months, and Kale made $400,000. Holy shit. Sitting at home in Norwood because he owned the name. Yeah. And they had to give him a quarter of the profits. It's, it's wild how much of a business aspect goes into music. I think, because we talk about, we talk to a lot of people who are making music and and they're focused on their art and stuff, but this is such a prevalent side of the industry that not a lot of people even think about. I've never really <laughs> thought about it until just now. Yeah, we, and, and, we and we have just scratched like, the surface. Yeah, exactly. We interviewed like 20 musicians. Yeah. And like, this has not come up. We just like, now we want to just go back and be like, hey, who, like publishing, is everything okay? Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, just just, make sure songs, just like ask Taylor. Yeah. Be <laughs> like, you just signed with Apple Music. Did you read, read the, the contract? contract? Please read the contract. Read the contract. <laughs> well, I always tell writers too, I mean, who say to me, I want to get writing, I want to get publishing. You know, if I get a contract, what should I do? Go straight to a lawyer. And, have a, and not a lawyer who does your real estate transactions or the lawyer that's representing the criminal down the street. Go to a, a, a lawyer that specializes in intellectual property. Intellectual property I mean, I had, I've, I've had a couple intellectual of Intellectual property lawyer. <laughs> I've had a couple of my books um, <laughs> licensed for making movies out of them. And it didn't happen, but it, they, they, had, they were licensed for, to, to make movies. Publishing rights. And the last publishing contract that I got and the company didn't end up doing it but um, it was rights for the universe they were negotiating for rights to make a movie or a documentary but in signing the contract I was giving them the rights for the universe and I asked my lawyer I said Jesus that's scary for the universe and he said you have to remember space travel is in the not too distant future and if people are flying from here to Tralfamador, you know, Kurt Vonnegut's <laughs> fictional space planet, 
they're gonna want, they're gonna need to watch movies. Wow. Or maybe they'll watch movies on Tralfamador. So you need to make sure you have the rights for that. Universe. Yeah, and that that's fairly so... standard nowadays. Rights for the universe. That sounds that sounds like it sounds like this exaggerated term, like you uh, know, you're signing over scary. your life. Like it yeah, sounds exactly. like that and you're like, Whoa, universe. Yeah. That's cool though if it gets played on a different planet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's fantastic. That's very cool. Of all yeah. the movies. Yeah. <laughs> John um, we could probably go all day, but we shouldn't keep you here. It's beautiful outside, so we want you to enjoy it. It's it's been fun. I mean, I could I could talk more if you wanted, but I don't know if this is what you kind of want. Yeah, this is exactly this what is we fantastic. want. Yeah. yeah, we can talk as long as you're ready to talk. Yeah, as long as you want. I want to know, like, also, do you go and see bands now? Currently, not really. No, no. not really. I mean, I'm six, I'll be sixty six in a, in a month. You know, I look like someone's granddad being at these shows so I don't go I don't go as often as I as I used to go so I, I'm not in tune with what's happening now right. in music unless mm -hmm. I ha unless I happen to know the artist and I'll go see them because I know them right Yeah. so don't ask me who my favorite new band is yeah you don't have one a uh, new band yeah no, no I probably couldn't name one. Oh my god don't put that on the air <laughs> no that's totally like that's fair no, I'm, it, it, again because I'm, I'm I'm a music history guy I'm not I'm not the guy who's writing current reviews of, of local bands in the paper right I'm the guy who'll do a feature article about um, you know a, a situation from you know like the, from the past or an artist from the past those, mm -hmm. those sorts of things what yeah. I write about so Say there is a band, or what should I be looking for if I say uh, I want to write a music history book, but it's like a local band? Do you know what I mean? Like keeping up with them. Okay. Like if there's a band that I think is cool, should I just like be asking them like, hey, can I like hang out and like take some pictures and like, you know what I mean? Like, sure. But keep in mind, um, it's like Stephen Ostick, who was a free press music um, critic, he was the, the music guy in um, the 1990s wanted to do a book on the Crash Test Dummies because he had known them from their start, you know, at, at uh, the Blue Note Cafe. I mean, all the people in the band were waiters at the Blue Note Cafe. It just They were the house band for a while. And he knew them from back then, and he saw their rise, and he charted it in, his, in the newspaper. He did a book on them after their second album, which was I mean, four million copies. But it was too soon mm -hmm. because the third album... I don't think even barely scraped a million, and after that it was downhill. Um, it was too soon. And you've, you've got to sort of sit back and say, yeah, I love this band, they're doing great, and they're doing some great recordings. But is there is there going to be anything kind of lasting enough that people are going to want to read about it? I always say this as well. If every Neil Young fan wanted to read about Neil Young, I'd be a multimillionaire. Mm -hmm. Because the, the, the books that I've done on him. But that's not the case. A lot, a lot of people who like artists, who like bands, who like music, just like the music mm -hmm. and aren't interested in reading about or learning more about who's in the band. Mm. That's the reason why, for example, a lot of, uh, a lot of what we call um, retro bands, tribute bands, uh, dinosaur bands, uh, still can go out and play. Jim Cale owns the name The Guess Who. So... Right now, it's the drummer from the Guess Who, original drummer Gary Peterson, and a bunch of guys who weren't even born when American Woman was a hit, and they go out as the Guess Who. They play state fairs, they play clubs, they play casinos, and they make a good living because Mr. Average 
family guy wants to take his wife for an evening to see some music at the casino. Oh, it's the Guess Who. Oh, These Eyes, American Woman. I remember those songs. Mm -hmm. So they go. And the guy up on stage, you know, as I said, wasn't born when those songs were hits, but he can sing a reasonable rendition of those songs. (laughs) Mr. and Mrs. Middle of the Road, Mom and Dad, Go Home Happy. Hey, we saw the Guess Who and we heard These Eyes, an American Woman. Without ever knowing or without ever realizing that the only original guy was the guy in the drums. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because they recognized the songs. That it, it, never, it never occurred to them to be interested to know that Burton Cummings was the lead singer in the band. Right. Yeah. They don't know. And that's, that's one of the things that really hurt Burton Cummings' career as a solo artist in the States was everybody knew the Guess Who. Everybody knew their songs. I mean, even Robert Plant said that Burton Cummings is one of the best rock and roll singers. But they know the songs. They don't know the guys who made those songs. They don't know the guys who sang those songs. Whereas Randy Bachman, he left the Guess Who, you know, when he had Brave Belt, but then he launched Bachman Turner Overdrive. It was his name, Bachman. Mm-hmm. People know. So he can go out as Randy Bachman Band. People yeah. know, okay, Bachman, Bachman Turner Overdrive. Burton Cummings, when he goes out you know, and went out and toured on his solo career, people didn't know who he was until he would sing a Guess Who song. Yeah. And, and it was tough for him. He only had one hit single in the United States, and that was Stand Tall. That was his first single. After that, it was downhill because people didn't know who he was and they didn't know his name. Uh, his first major tour in the United States with, when he released his first solo album in 1977, he was opening act for Alice Cooper. Wow. Now, imagine the kind of people who go see Alice Cooper. <laughs> yeah. They don't want to hear Stan Tall. Right. They don't want to see a guy that, that's kind of Barry Manilow. <laughs> yeah. Opening, and he was booed every night. Wow. Because, but and then he launched. Hey, so was Bob Dylan. Yeah. He, <laughs> it's no big deal. How does it feel? Um, because they didn't know who he was. They didn't know he was the guy that sold millions of records and the voice of American Woman until he sang American Woman. You know, it's it, it's. People need to kind of know who you are. And I go, I, there's another story too about Buffy St. Marie. Buffy St. Marie, the great singer songwriter, folk artist, pioneering folk artist and singer songwriter. In uh, the 1980s, she, well, okay, I'll give you this example. She, she comes to plays the folk festival in Winnipeg quite often, okay? Mm-hmm. And she's certainly known in the folk music community. But a lot of people may not know her any further than that. So a friend of mine, a woman I, taught school with, um, it was September, we're back at school, and she says to me, because she knew I'm you know, into music and writing, she said, I saw Buffy St. Marie at the Folk Festival. She was wonderful. I said, oh, that's great, she's a great performer, because I've known Buffy for years. And, then, and the woman said to me, yeah, but you know, she ended with a pop song. And I said, what? She ended her show by playing a pop song, and I can't figure out why she played a pop song. And I looked at her and I said, was it Up Where We Belong? Love lift us up where we belong, you know. And she said, "Yes, that's the song," because <laughs> Joe Cocker and Jennifer Warnes had had a hit with it. It won an Academy Award for, for best song for for the movie "An Officer and a Gentleman." Buffy wrote it. Buffy won an Academy Award for that song. Oh. So she's playing her song, and most of the people are saying, "Why is she doing that song?" Because they right. don't know she wrote yeah. it. They don't know she wrote it, but they know Joe Cocker did that song and Jennifer Warnes did that song yeah. so when Joe Cocker played in Winnipeg in 2000 and he did that song everybody went nuts but if Buffy came out and did that song they'd be like well why is she doing that song yeah. right they just because they didn't know Interesting. and that's kind of the same thing with Burton Cummings they'd, oh yeah we love the Guess Who songs well, who are you right yeah well, we don't know wow well and there's lots of money to be made in the nostalgia music market there are many many bands who are out there with one original guy 
There's even a version of the birds touring with no original guys. Yeah. You go see Jerry and the pacemakers <laughs> at your casino and you pay 30 bucks to go see him. And yes, it's Jerry and he's 110 years old. But it's like his grandkids are all in the band playing in the band because they're all so young. Mm-hmm. But people don't care. They want to hear the songs. They want yeah. to hear the hits. And, and they can say, I saw Jerry and, Jerry and the pacemakers. Not really. You didn't see Jerry and the pacemakers. You saw Jerry with a pacemaker. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the question: Is how do you remember all of these dates? You remember dates for everything. I do. How? how July twenty third, nineteen sixty three. Neil Young made his first recording in Winnipeg at CKRC Recording Studio. He came back April second, nineteen sixty four. Did a second recording there. I just I have a head for that, and I love that stuff. Right. And like I said, when I finished playing, I, you know, it was nice to kind of dovetail into writing about music history because I loved it, and and. I can, I guess, I, I could read a magazine article back then, or and, and I used to, you know, back then you got you bought albums, right? Mm-hmm. It was tactile. This is only the inner sleeve. It was something to hold, and there was information. You could read the information on it, mm-hmm. and often the artwork was as important as the record. And a lot of time was spent on that artwork mm-hmm. because a mm-hmm. good cover could sell a record. Because if no, someone's never heard of Rush, and they're walking into the record store, and this is up on a wall on a shelf, and you say, "Wow, that looks cool. I'll buy it." Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's Plenty the best of records. record? Plenty of records I bought were on the basis of of, of the cover. So best cover. What's the best cover that you've bought? Oh, I think in the court of the Crimson King by King, King Crimson is the best cover. Yeah. Yeah, you'll have to look it yeah, up. I'm I sure. will. Yeah. In the court of the Crimson King, it's iconic, and that's a record I bought for the cover. I, thought, I walked into Opus sixty nine Records in early nineteen seventy on the wall because they always have a display of the latest albums. What's this album? I thought, whoa. That's cool. I had no idea what kind of music it was. That record changed my life. I put the vinyl on. I did. They could have been a bluegrass band playing with banjos, but they weren't. I mean, this was this was music I had never heard before. This was music I had no context for before. This is my first introduction to prog rock or progressive rock with the Mellotron, the Mellotron, <laughs> which could sound like a symphony. It's it's a tape recorder really because it's got tape loops in it, and you play a note. And activates a tape of it, and you can you, so so uh, if, if you have a program, if if you, if you have uh, a mellotron that'll play flute and cello, and choir, mm-hmm. it's usually two or three sounds. There are tape loops for every note, from a flute, from and if you choose cello, from a cello, or choose choir, it's a choir, been recorded, and you hit a C chord and you hit choir. Oh, you got this choir, because it's like playing a tape recorder, and. In the Court of the Crimson King, the Mellotron is the key instrument, along with the saxophone on that album. Wow. And I remember putting that album on and just sitting, without any kind of chemical enhancements of <laughs> right, any kind, or herbal day, enhancements, <laughs> just sitting and listening to it. And it was, it was so heavy in the sense of not like, you know, six-foot-high martial amps blasting away at you like Blood Black, Black Sabbath. It was heavy because it was so doom-laden and dark. I never heard anything like it. Wow, cool! That's, and, it, and it ranks as one of my most favorite albums as well. Cool. We're That's gonna cool. have to like. You are gonna have to listen to that album. Yeah, sure. Sit in. So we were talking about dates and tactile. Okay, because yeah. I love that stuff. Um, I just I'm able to retain it. <laughs> There's an answer. And, and, and I love it. it. Yeah, absolutely. I love this stuff, and it just sticks in my mind, and I can retain it. I do three hours on the Magical Musical History Tour. Dates, facts, information, stories. Like I, people love stories. Three hours, I talk nonstop. Wow. Because people love that kind of info go on the tour. <laughs> uh, people love that kind of stuff. And they, and they love the anecdotes and stories, too. And that's why I said, 
getting back way, way back when you asked me this question about what do you do when you're putting a book together and you look for story, you look for human mm-hmm. interest. And when I go to do the interviews, if it's the subject or if it's other people, I mean, for the Gene Clark book I did, Mr. Tambourine Man, um, I interviewed over 100 people because it's the first book I did where the subject was dead. So I couldn't interview the right. subject. Here's a question. Was there ever a contradiction? Someone told yes. a story and someone else oh, told yeah. a story and you had to believe... How do you how do you choose who to believe? Okay, I'll, I'll give you a good example of that. Great. In um, so on, <laughs> on April sixth, <laughs> April sixth, nineteen sixty six, Neil Young was already in L.A. He had uh, bought a hearse, a nineteen fifty three Pontiac hearse in Toronto. He and Bruce Palmer and four other people drove. They crossed the border illegally, and were driving to L.A. to look up Stephen Stills. Neil had met Stephen the year before in Thunder Bay, and they liked each other. So Stephen said, let's form a band together sometime. Stephen went, left Thunder Bay and went on to Winnipeg. He played the 4D here in Winnipeg, and then he went on to Regina. Then he headed to California. Neil knew that Stephen was somewhere in California. Remember, these, these guys are nobodies, okay? Neil knew that Stephen was somewhere in, in L.A., but had no idea where he was. Mm-hmm. So he, he arrives on April 1st, and as Neil said, how appropriate, April Fool's Day. He arrives on April 1st in his um, hearse, okay? Neil had a a hearse in Thunder Bay. And Stephen remembered, this is the guy, the Canadian guy who likes hearses. So Neil arrives, a different hearse. Neil arrives in L.A. and he spends six days driving, looking all over for Stephen Stills, going to clubs, going to parties, everywhere. Hey, do you know a guy named Stephen Stills? Can't find him. So on the sixth day, April 6th, Neil and Bruce Palmer decide, they've lost the other people in the band, they've jettisoned them. They're on Sunset Boulevard, and people know about the Sunset Strip, right? Sunset mm-hmm. Strip. Sunset Strip is only a, a few blocks of a longer street that's several miles long called Sunset Boulevard. So Neil is on Sunset Strip as a part of Sunset Boulevard, and they're heading north because they're going to go to San Francisco. Can't find stills here, let's go to San Francisco. He's heading north. Coming south is a white van with Stephen Stills and Richie Ferrey in that van. They're coming this way. Neil and Bruce are going that way. The other guy in the, driving the white van is Barry Friedman, who was kind of hanging out with Stills and Ferrey. Okay. So, the gist of the story is the van, guys in the van saw the hearse, remembered that there was this crazy guy from Winnipeg who liked hearses. This was an Ontario license plate. They pulled behind, beeped, honked the horn, got the attention of the hearse driver. They pulled into the parking lot of Ben Frank's, which was a really cool hangout for teens at the time restaurant. Got out of the, got out of the van and the, and the hearse, hugged, formed a band that night, the Buffalo Springfield. Five days later, they made their debut at the Troubadour. Wow. Okay, one of the most five beloved days. American bands, five days later. Wow. Three, and there were three Canadians and two Americans in that band, Stills and Ferret. Okay. And that was the first time getting together. Yeah, so. <laughs> this is the story. This is I, one version of I the I interviewed story. all five of them. Okay. Five guys were in that event, and five guys told the story slightly differently. Oh. How do I decide who's right? Mm. I wasn't there. Whatever story you like. <laughs> Whatever's the most compelling. <laughs> it's a good story, Art. So, like, what was so what the I did? Con- it's a, like minor contradictions in there. Uh, in well, minor contradictions. Minor. Like Stephen says, well, I, I saw, I saw the the hearse, and Barry Friedman says, says, uh, no, I saw the hearse, and I knew Stephen had told me about this guy who drove hearses, and Richie Ferrey says, well, I met Neil, and I knew he had, you know, and Bruce Palmer says, well, we weren't looking this way or that way. And Neil says, I was just driving. Um, <laughs> so in the book, I can't. How do I know who's right and who's wrong? Do I figure who's the least stoned guy? Um, <laughs> so I put in all five. I put in all five. 
setting it up by saying, you know, by this is the event and this is how they all viewed it. Mm-hmm. And you, the reader, can decide which one or, or none of them. I mean, they all kind of add a perspective to the story. Right. I can't make those decisions. Same thing with Gene Clark. Gene Clark, the tambourine player in The Birds, and you know, went on to an ill-fated career, but one of the greatest songwriters in pop music. Um, he died in his rented home in Sherman Oaks, and his body was found by a friend lying on the floor. And what happens in the, in the there's two hours before the, the ambulance is called, and there's conflicting stories as to what happened during that time. Some say that friends, they, that the guy who found him phoned friends, they came and they cleaned the house out of all the drugs. Someone else says they came and they cleaned the house out of all Gene's guitars and things. And just, there were, there were about three or four con- conflicting stories. And mm-hmm. I wasn't there. I can't make that decision. Mm-hmm. So you've kind of got to be able to present the conflicting views. Now, sometimes, in some cases, in other books and even in these books, you have a sense of what you know did happen, however you know it, that you know it happened. Maybe you've read it somewhere else in other sources, and then someone tells you something different, and you know it's not true. Mm-hmm. Then you, as the writer, have to make that judgment. I mean, I've sat in front of people, sat in, I've sat in front of people who sat right this close to me, who lied, lied bold faced to me, through a whole interview. And? and I know it's a lie, but you don't just say you're a liar. You could, well, are you sure about that kind of thing? Well, and, and sometimes people will hold on to their stories because sometimes there's access to grind. Sometimes there's financial gain involved, too. So you've got and to kind of... And there's also just human gotta, error, too, right? Yep, yeah. And you've got to kind of weigh the context, the person, and the veracity of what they're saying and make those kind of judgments. Wow. Hmm. And sometimes you can't. Sometimes you just got to let, let them all tell their story. Yeah. And is there sometimes where you just drop the story completely? Not if it's important to the story. Like right. the, the Buffalo Springfield story on Sunset Boulevard, that's legendary. That's, right. that's, that's like rock and roll mythology. You know, meeting on Sunset Boulevard and the hearse and they formed the Buffalo Springfield. I, I, imagine if Stills and Foray were looking the other way and the hearse went by. Mm-hmm. How yeah. music would be different. We'd have no Buffalo Springfield. We'd have no Crosby, Stills, Nash. No Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. You know, and all the antecedents that come out of that. No Loggins and Messina. No Poco. All of that stuff would have changed forever. Well, we wouldn't have known, of course. But if they just looked the other way. You know, and you think about the, all, that, all these kind of situations whereby... I, I, do, I, I did a course last year at McNally's called Rock and Roll Serendipity. And it talks about all those situations. Mm-hmm. You know, that if... If a split-second decision or a split-second look the other way, how that would have forever changed rock and roll. If when Keith Richard was walking along a platform at a train station in Dartford in in East End of London, if he had gotten on a, a, a car a few cars earlier, he wouldn't have run into Mick Jagger. There'd be no no Rolling Stones. But, That's you know, he just happened to keep going further. And Jagger saw a bunch of blues albums under his arm. And they reconnected because they'd known each other as little kids, but hadn't seen each other in years. Hmm. All that serendip- and there's lots of serendipity stories like that. Wow. So the courses that you teach, how do you decide what you want to teach a course on? Um, I, this is, I think, my seventh year of teaching McNally's courses. And I always teach them in the fall on Fridays. Um, I'm trying to find things that will connect with people because I have a lot of people who come again and again so you can't keep offering the same course mm-hmm. um, so we try to find things that are that are 
that might have some some interest that people may not have may be interested in, but maybe there's not a lot on it, or you know, it could maybe catch an interest. Like uh, my first course at McNally's in in September is, is uh, on the first two Led Zeppelin albums and how they changed the course of rock and roll, because they introduced hard rock, power cording. They changed production by having mics on drums much much closer. I mean, you listen to the first two Led Zeppelin albums, and it's like John Bonham is sitting in your living room playing them because the drum sound is so heavy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, everything that followed from that, including like heavy metal and hard rock and ACDC and everybody that comes from them, it stems from those first two albums. I do one, I do a course on Motown this, this fall, the history of Motown. I'm doing one on California Dreaming, and it's looking at this, the, the style of sounds going back to the Beach Boys, uh, the Mamas and Papas, folk rock singer-songwriters, all the kind of music that Laurel Canyon that came out of California at that time. I'm doing one on Graham Parsons and the the uh, beginnings of country rock. I'm doing one on the um, the first five Rolling Stones albums, recorded over an eighteen over an eighteen month period, and how they set the template for the Rolling Stones from then on. Mm-hmm. You know, the rhythm and blues and hard rock sound. So, I'm trying to find things that 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 would be of interest. I'm also doing one on the history of Winnipeg rock and roll, which sold out immediately. So clearly, there's a lot of people interested in that sort of thing. Just the courses that are a little different, mm-hmm. yeah. a little different. I'm, you know, meanwhile, I'm teaching at the University of Winnipeg a six-week course on the fabulous '50s, all the social and cultural changes and related to music and popular culture in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was looking at the courses at McNally, and I was like, I want to take. I can afford to take one, so which one? And I couldn't decide. It was just overload, so I just exited. But I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll come back to it. Yeah. yeah, it was overwhelming. It was too many choices. But I think that's excellent, having classes that are available to adults. At a, they're pretty affordable. Are they 50 bucks or something? Like 30. That? 30 bucks. 30 bucks. And it's like... A, it's two and a half hours. Two and a half hours. Seven so to nine thirty. used to be two hours, but I, I said to them for this year, I said, I want two and a half because I sometimes feel rushed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you like to give people a little bit of a break in between because we're you know, I'm teaching to older people and they can't necessarily hold it as long as younger people can. <laughs> yeah. So give them a ten minute break. Um, yeah, my courses usually used to go on longer anyway because people were interested. But looking over the courses I've taught at McNally's, for example, for for seven years, um, probably about fifty courses. It's quite diverse. I mean, I did a course on prog rock, a three year three-week course in progressive rock and you know a lot of different I did you know blues guitarists starting with like Mike Bloomfield and Clapton and on and B.B. King just trying to find things that might be of, of niche interest rather than just a history of rock and roll I mean mm-hmm. I've done lots of those um, I, one of the most popular ones is from Elvis Presley to Elvis Costello A Concise History of Rock and Roll and it's a six-week multimedia all my courses are multimedia and a six-week multimedia course on the history of rock and roll Do you ever play? Yes you have a guitar? I, have, I, I brought a guitar in. I, I, I did one on kind of the history of the guitar and rock and roll. Hmm. You know, going right back to Charlie Christian and, you know, Scotty Moore from Elvis's band, Les Paul, all the way up to, you know, the guitar greats. And I bring in different guitars that I have to show the devolution of different sounds. Like when you listen to rockabilly music like Elvis and, and that kind of music from the, from the mid-50s, it's this big Gretsch countryish kind of sound. I have a big Gretsch, a big great white falcon. So I show that kind of sound. And and then with the solid body guitar coming in, you know, I bring in my Fender Stratocaster and demonstrate how that sound is different yeah. and that style is different. And 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 show the evolution of power cording and, and how the, the Les Paul guitar came to define rock and roll at about nineteen sixty six or sixty seven and is still it is still the number one rock guitar and why is it so? 
why and I bring I have a 48 year old Gibson Les Paul and I bring it in and play it and you can hear the heavier sound and I show them with Hendrix how Hendrix with a Fender Stratocaster was able to get a lot of the sounds that he did so yeah I play that's so cool that's so cool so do you remember what your first article was about ever music oh, yeah. article okay I did I did an article in a fanzine uh-huh it was called 54321 was the fanzine and I did an article in a band called the Mindbenders mm-hmm. they, had a, they, had, they had a hit song with groovy kind of love but they had a bit of a history before that so I did a story on the, on the Mindbenders but I'm sure that the magazine this is this is this is almost like pre-internet yeah so how did you find them or contact I, them I, I think I somehow it was in the back of a trouser press magazine there was an ad for them and I probably wrote them a letter <laughs> but the one that kind of broke it for me was um in 1984, I did an article for the Free Press. It was, um, I played in a band in the 70s with a guy who back in the 60s had been in a band called the Crescendos. And the Crescendos left Winnipeg in August of 1965 and went to Liverpool. And they played the Cavern Club. The Cavern Club was the home of the Beatles. The Beatles yeah. played there 292 times and they were discovered there by Brian Epstein, the Cavern. So it's like, in, in 60s music, the Cavern was like the Mecca. And they were teenagers who grew up with all of that. And so they went to the Mecca. They went to Liverpool and they played the Liverpool circuit for a year and a half, almost two years. And they played the Cavern. But when they came back, they they weren't stars. They just came back, tails between their legs. And no one really knew about their adventures. But when I played with this guy, Glenn McRae, uh, in the 70s in a band... During breaks, we'd all be, because we all grew up with crescendos, we'd always say, tell us another story about Liverpool. Ooh, you know, we all wanted to hear about it. So in the 1980s, I had already been writing teacher's manuals and textbooks and stuff like that. So I thought, you know, this is a really cool story about the crescendos going, and no one really knows what their adventures were like in Liverpool. So I sat down with Glenn, I interviewed him, and I contacted one of the other guys from the band. And I had no knowledge or understanding of how freelance writing or newspapers work. I, I had I had a little wee computer, one of these Apple two C computers, you know, 120, 128k was like the memory, um, and I typed it up and I just put it in an envelope and sent it to the Free Press Entertainment editor, mm-hmm. and about three weeks later, there's the Saturday newspaper arrives. We were living in Morden at the time, and I opened it up and there's my story, the whole front page wow. of of the entertainment section. And Did then you get a, paid for the article? I was going to say, then about a month later, a check arrived. Yes. <laughs> and I, I was like, my God. Do you remember you get, how much the check paid? was for? It was for $250. Wow. Oh, that's really cool. And so that, kind of, that, was, that was the start, really. That was the start. And in terms of writing books, um, I credit Neil Young for giving me my career. Because Neil Young doesn't do a lot of interviews. He certainly doesn't sit down with authors of books to do any of that. So... The books about Neil Young are really someone analyzing Neil Young or someone lifting quotes from interviews with Neil Young, that sort of thing. Yours Neil, is the real deal. Yeah, Neil invited me down. I sat with him in his living room. I talked to, interviewed him by phone afterwards. And it was the story never told, really, like I said, in Winnipeg and Canada. The book was called Don't Be Denied, because that's one of his songs where he talks about moving to Winnipeg as a kid. Um, and... The, that was really other than Shaken All Over is the first book that was published internationally and um, that kind of gave me my career because if I was contacting an artist or contacting a publishing company I was able to, to play the Neil Young card well I did a book on Neil Young mm-hmm. because people don't get to Neil Young and for Neil Young to have cooperated with me gave me a lot of cred 
Yeah. So it opened up a lot of doors for me that I was unable to step through because of that book on Neil Young. Wow. So it, uh, you know, I, I, I thank Neil for having that career with me. That's fantastic. I have one more last quick question. Is if for someone, unless you have a question? No. Last one. Tip for somebody that wants to do what you're doing or what you have done with like books and articles. What is like three tips that you need to keep in mind when you're approaching an artist and like want to start? Well, certainly the first tip is um, make sure your subject is, is sufficiently known enough that people want to read about it. You could do a book on the band that you just saw last night playing at the Norwood. Mm-hmm. But who's going? Yeah, they may be your favorites, and they may be a great band, writing great songs. But who's going to know who they are? Okay, make sure that that it, it's the story has appeal beyond just you and and a cult following kind of thing. Make sure that there's a good storyline there, and make sure you know about you, you. You know you've done your homework and know your business because if you contact an artist and you don't really you haven't done your homework, they're not going to be interested in spending time with you. Many of the people that I've spent time interviewing have said to me afterwards, you know more than I do yeah. about my life. <laughs> because if you're going into, going into an interview with someone, you've got to know what you're talking about. You've got to be prepared. And it's up to me to have the context, the skeleton. And that's something I do. We talked earlier about doing a book. Once I'm going to do the book, I've decided I've made contacts, it's a go, then I make a timeline. Like this sort of thing, a timeline. And that becomes your skeleton. That becomes the bones, okay? The timeline, the factors in there recorded here, did this, do it, all that. You've got the skeleton. And then what you're going to add to it is the meat, and that's the color commentary from the people you interview. Mm-hmm. You can't ask them for the bones, because in most cases they don't remember the bones. They're not going to remember on June 6th we did you know, such and such. But if you're able to, to throw that to them, then that will stimulate them to be able to talk about it. Okay, so have a good timeline. And then what you're doing is you're filling in, in that timeline, the, the info, the color commentary, the anecdotes, the stories, all of that. But um, make sure you know what you're talking about. Because artists aren't necessarily going to want to spend time with you if you don't know what you're doing. And always make sure, just like we have done mm-hmm. here, a good, interview, a good interview is a conversation. A bad interview is... Uh, question number five. Uh, so when you were playing at the uh, arena, you know, that's bad. That's a bad interview. Okay, so you it's got, a good you, interview. You, go, you engage in conversation. And you should, I mean, you might have questions in front of you, and I go in doing that. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not saying, uh, okay, so then in 74, you know, because that's bad. Yeah. Know what you're going to talk about and engage in a conversation. Jack Holtzman started Electra Records. He started in his dorm at university in the 1950s. Electra Records signed The Doors, Queen, major, major artists, okay? They became a huge company. He sold it for half a billion dollars, you know, about 20 years ago. He's a guy that doesn't necessarily suffer fools gladly. You gotta know what you're talking about. He lives in this beautiful two-story penthouse in Santa Monica. And when I was doing my Arthur Lee book, he signed Arthur Lee in Love. They were the first rock band that, that Electra, who was a folk act, folk label, had ever signed. He loved Arthur Lee. So I contacted him, email, and he said, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll give you about half an hour. That, that's fine. Okay. So I came to his place, sat down. Two and a half hours later, we're still talking. 
Mm-hmm. And he said to me afterwards, when, you know, when I finally said, well, you know, that, 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 I asked everything I want to ask. He said to me, you know, that's the best interview I've ever had because it wasn't an interview. We just talked. Mm-hmm. And everything I wanted to ask him that was on that sheet, I didn't have to look at. I just asked him because I knew what it was I wanted to get from him. And if you have that focus and you know what you want this, from this person and know what you want from that person and you know, know what you want from that person, then you can be focused as, and you can lead them to where you want to go. So make sure that interviews are not interrogations. The conversations, and avoid. Some artists will say, "I'll do, I'll do, um, I'll do an, an email interview." No, because unless they're loquacious, like if you'd said to me, "We're going to do an email interview," and you sent me a bunch of questions, you're going to get long answers because you can tell I'm a guy who talks a lot mm-hmm. and a lot of stories. You're going to get long answers because, in fact, I, I express myself better in writing than I do orally. But some people just will give you yes/no answers. Roger McGuinn, the guy, you know, the founding member of the Birds and the Jingle Jangle, Mr. Tambourine Man guitar. When I was doing my book on Gene Clark, he said, "You know, I'll do uh, an internet interview." And so I sent him a few questions just to see how this was going to go, and I got yes/no answers. Hmm. And I mean, I can't build a book around that, and I can't if like like. I, I said a few things that stimulated a question that you then asked me, mm-hmm. right? There's that interchange. There's that back and forth in a face-to-face interview or, or an interview where you're talking live to someone. And I said to him after that, I said, I said this isn't going to work. We have to talk together. And he said, I don't do those kind of interviews. And I said, but this, this, isn't, this isn't working for me. I'm not getting anything out of you. Mm-hmm. So he reluctantly agreed, and we did a phone interview, and it was great. He opened up because I pulled from him, mm-hmm. and I stimulated him with information, and I, you know, he mentioned something, and I, you know, well, can you elaborate on that? That sort of thing that you don't get from, a, from an interview that's just on the Internet. Yeah. Just a yes-no, because you could get a yes-no kind of thing. Because some people aren't necessarily keyboard-savvy, Mm-hmm. And I could an- I could answer you fairly quickly because I'm keyboard savvy enough to be able to answer. But he might be doing this, so he's not going to want to give you a long paragraph answer Just when like he's doing this. Yeah, yeah hunt, hunt and peck kind of thing. Yeah, you know. So so again, an interview by voice uh, is important. Um, Mike Nesmith of the Monkeys. He, now you may not know who the Monkeys are, but they were like I used the to TV watch the version. Show on like Deja. V- Deja Vu or whatever. He was the guy with the little toque that he wore. Yeah, yeah. And he was actually the songwriter guy in the band. Um, he doesn't do interviews. He, I mean, he's a multimillionaire. He's a guy who's got so many things going on uh, in terms of media arts. But I got to him through a friend. And so Mike said, okay, well, well I'll give you an hour. And that was fine. I was doing my book, Desperados, The Roots of Country Rock. I wasn't talking to him about the monkeys. Mm-hmm. And it, as it turned out, he said to me, oh, no one ever asked me about this stuff, just like Neil had said. But we were on, we were on the phone for, for over two hours, and it was wonderful. And I bet you I didn't say more than about 20 words, because he was so eloquent, so insightful, so incredibly smart, that I just let him go. Yeah. And he just pretty much led the whole thing. And I might throw it a question or two, but a lot of what I said was, yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, just to let him know I'm still on the other end of the yeah. phone. Yeah. <laughs> because it was absolutely brilliant. I mean, you're, you're listening to this thinking, this is gold. This is gold. You know, and and you, you wanted him to keep going. Yeah. And he felt comfortable enough to keep going with me. Wow. 
great tips. Yeah. Well, There's, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for being comfortable enough with us to keep going. <laughs> yeah. No, it's okay. You can tell the passion because I talk with passion about this oh, stuff. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it, it is, mean, it is my obsession and my passion. <laughs> we try and listen passionately. <laughs> well, thank you. No, thank you so much, John, for coming on. We appreciate it. And giving us all this time. We really appreciate it. W- yeah. oh, when is your next class? Or do, you, do you have a one that's coming up soon? I do. I do. Uh, McNally's is my first class, uh, and it's September the 14th, and it's the Led Zeppelin one. Led Zeppelin one and two. Nice. Ooh, interesting. And I've got, I've got another class the week after. And I'm not sure which topic that you can go on McNally's community classroom and find that. But from September 28th to October 14th, I'm away because I'm leading a tour group on the British Invasion tour to Liverpool and London. Ooh. Oh wow! I'm, I'm, I've done these tours before. So the 25 people have signed up, and we go to the Cavern Club, and we go to the Casbah. Wow. We take the magical musical hist- magical music the magic. What the fuck is it called? Magical Mystery Tour. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. they sell out the bus. And then go to London. We do all sorts of tours and things. We go to, you know, we've got a, a guy come and speak to us at dinner one night. So they're fun. And then I'm back doing the rest of my courses. Amazing. Oh, well, awesome. We'll see you there. Yeah, Hopefully we'll some of our, your new fans after this podcast will be there with us. Cool. Well, when does this run? So you can let, drop me a note and let me know. You know, do you have my email address? We have all of your stuff. Yeah, we have all of your contact info. Okay, because I just sent the... the uh, to, to, through Facebook, I sent you the bio today, but I don't know if you have my email address. We will uh, post podcast. We'll figure it all yeah. out. Yeah, we'll, okay. we'll hammer out all the details. Not via email. We'll do it in person because <laughs> yeah, we can do it here, right <laughs> yeah, here. It's better. Yeah, it's better. Oh yeah, if there's something you need elaboration on, fantastic. Great. Thank, Thank you, you for, for cutting, cutting deep with us on Papercut Paper 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 Podcast. Oh nice. Thanks. Cutting deep.